It's a pleasure to open up the word of the Lord with you all this morning. Our text comes from the book of 1 John. We're looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Again, 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find uh, it on page 1022. Again, 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we need your help. Your word is powerful and deep and wide, and we can understand it not unless your Spirit helps us. And so we ask that you would, by the Spirit's power, apply your word to our hearts, that it would convict, and that it would encourage. God, as you bring forth your word in power, we know that it will bring a harvest. And so we expect that, God, and we pray that you would help us in hearing it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to get our bearings uh, with where we're at in uh, sort of the string of things, we just went through a series called Meals with Jesus. We had a few sermons, six or seven, I can't remember which, but uh, Meals with Jesus, focusing on Jesus coming, kind of flipping the tables and, and showing us how he had a heart uh, for the lowly, for, for the weak, uh, for the sick. We've just exited Luke, and Nate even got us in last week to, to just a little bit into uh, Acts uh, 2.42. And so we heard about Christ's own revelation of himself in all of the scriptures. We heard about the breaking of bread. And these things, they became the seeds of the early church. So now we're, we're hitting fast forward just a little bit as we look at John's first epistle. We're jumping forward maybe 20, 30, or 40 years, but we're going to hear about uh, a problem that these readers, these hearers of John's epistle had that, that we also have. He said in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. John's readers, John's hearers, they weren't always knowing or trusting that they were of the truth. They weren't always knowing or trusting that they could stand before God with confidence. And isn't this a problem that we face every day? So John's holding out an objective. He's, he's focused on Christians knowing that they're assured, knowing that they are confident before God, not that they're isolated, not that they're cast off or, or not condemned. He wants them to see their identity as being of the truth and to have confidence. I want to orient this particular sermon around one uh, word or, or one concept in particular. John uses it a number of times. Uh, not just in this small passage, but throughout this first epistle. And that's the word condemn. You saw it there in verse 20 and in verse 21. Condemnation typically implies that uh, a, somehow a court proceeding has gone on and there's a verdict and it's guilty. Uh, somebody has been condemned to death. We know that. Uh, we've heard that before in our common culture. But John has sort of gotten us to this condemnation without explaining any of the things that have happened before. 
there's, there's, we haven't heard anything about the indictment or uh, about the deliberations. And so we're going to start to unpack those things. Because we want to really tackle this problem, these spats of heart condemnation that shake our assurance of being in the truth, that shake our assurance of being in the faith. So it's maybe been a while since you last saw a legal show uh, or a law movie or read a a John Grisham novel. So let me uh, just set the stage a little bit so you can see the wider context of why John chose this particular term of condemnation and why it's helpful to examine it in that context. So in a courtroom, a judge and a jury, they work together to determine the guilt or the innocence of a defendant. And what's put forward today, the judge and the jury are our heart. And we are the defendant. The heart has condemned us. The heart has reviewed all of this case evidence. And by that I mean like your sin and and my sin and our sin. And it's saying condemned, guilty. And so I want to hit the rewind button. And I want to look back at this indictment and deliberation and and then kind of review things. So our first point. The indictment is where we're going to see the charges brought against us by the heart in full detail. Our second point, the deliberation, is where we're going to look at the prosecution, i.e. Satan, how he leverages the evidence, how he accuses us, and how our righteous and perfect defender, the Holy Spirit, examines and holds up the same evidence, and how that plays out in our daily lives. Lastly, we'll look at the verdict. We'll re- we'll review that initial verdict of condemned, and then we're going to examine the appropriateness of that sentence in the face of John's objectives for his readers. How will they be reassured? How will they be confident that they are of the truth and uh, in Christ? And so we begin with point one, the indictment. Here are where charges are formally brought against the defendant. But before we look at the charges themselves, we need to look at the character of the heart more fully. Dr. Craig Troxell, one of uh, my favorite seminary professors, a a man that I get to learn under, he has this wonderful book talking all about uh, the life of the heart in the Christian. And he says that the heart includes what we know, what we love, and what we choose. That sounds like everything we do all day long. It's really complex. Scripture uses the heart most often to talk about the inner life of the Christian. Many of us know key Bible passages and verses that talk about the heart. We heard them in the Psalms that we just heard um, a little bit ago. But maybe these things come to mind. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is desperately sick. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand the heart? Luke 6.45 Out of the wellspring of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Psalms are littered with these references of the heart being a complex unity of the mind, of the desires, and of the will. So we can call it the engine, you can call it the control station or the ticker, but what's important to remember in the scope of our passage today is that the heart is very complex, but it has condemned us. We have to hold that up at the same time that we're holding up this fact that sin doesn't just start randomly. It doesn't just come out of anywhere. It originates from within this complex realm that we call the heart. 
So now we, we, we know the heart is complex, but we need to see how we've arrived at this condemned verdict. So let's look at the crimes together, our sins. Any new Christian probably walks through the book of Romans fairly soon in their pilgrimage on this earth. And Paul makes a case that says all humanity is totally corrupt, save Jesus Christ. We don't think about it like that all the time, but we do think in the categories of I've lied or I've cheated, I've lusted, I've been hateful, spiteful, scornful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who are the victims of our crimes? Well, we have offended a holy God. But we've also offended and hurt many other people with our sin. Our sin doesn't just stay inside us. It gets on other people. We've hurt our brothers and sisters in Christ, those in our families, our friends, our co-workers. The size, the type of sin, the duration of sin, the parties involved in sin, it doesn't lessen the impact of sin. What did David say in Psalm 51? We started as sinners, being brought forth in iniquity, and it's the default setting of our heart until we're given a new one. So there are consequences, obviously, and there's a sentence for sinning. The consequences are numerous in this life, but we know that life doesn't just stop at the grave, it goes on. And the wages of our sin is death. Not only that, we've gained hell. We've gained the wrath of God unless we've put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. So here we come to this strange duality. John is saying, you guys should be totally assured that you know Christ, that you are of the truth, and be confident before God. But then he's saying, wait, your heart often condemns you. How am I supposed to stand up in front of God when I just heard the jury say, guilty, guilty? How can I be assured of my faith when it's happening over and over when I'm hearing those words ring out? Well, the defense doesn't leave us standing on our own, but gives us a few key pieces of evidence to look at. So let's look at those together. The first piece of evidence is this, and it's uh, verse 20, part B. It says, God is greater than our heart. While the language might seem simple, there's a categorical shift that takes place in the courtroom of the conscience. There's a stark contrast that's emphasized here between our sin and God's holiness. God sees more keenly than we see. God searches more minutely than we search out for sin. God judges more severely. Doesn't sound good for us. But praise the Lord, God's mercy is also greater. When our heart goes to condemn us, John says, that's not the end of the story. Look at this evidence. And then we move on. There's another piece of evidence. And perhaps this is the most crucial of the passage. It says, he... That's God knows everything. Well, in all of these crime shows that uh, we watch, or if you listen to true crime podcasts, that's maybe something I do occasionally, there's evidence. Evidence is so crucial that there are shows based on finding as much evidence as possible within the first 48 hours. Evidence leads to suspects. Evidence leads to convictions. And without it, cases go no further. Justice is not served. Stunningly, God has never had to canvas a sin scene. He's never reopened a cold case. There are no head scratchers before our all-knowing 
and our sovereign Lord. This knowing of everything, it starts corporately, publicly, in the church. God gives us the church because individual Christians experience both real guilt and false guilt or shame in their lives every day. And what do we do when we gather together? Do we point at one another and say, you need to lift yourself up out of your own sin? No. We confess our sin to each other. We lift each other up through encouragement, through scriptural edification. Over and over again, we point each other toward Christ. We see there is your sufficiency. There is your hope. There is your power. There is love and mercy. So God knows this publicly and corporately, but also intimately and personally. Another psalm, Psalm 139, we've probably heard before. It says, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. Verse 7, Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol... And it goes on. This is where the case gets turned on its head. The evidence being God's greatness, number one, and God's full knowledge, number two, they've been thrown out by our condemning heart. Our heart is so confident, or maybe confused, or prideful, certainly complex, that it tries to have this God evidence removed from the case. doesn't want the jury looking at it at all. But we have to deliberate, don't we? We have to look at what the evidence is. So let's turn to point number two, deliberation. A consideration of the evidence. Deliberation happens at two different levels. There is an unseen level to deliberation. In the Christian realm, we have the perfect indwelling Holy Spirit who advocates for us, who points to our sin, but also points us toward our exoneration to Christ Jesus. But we face this really greasy, sly, manipulative, crafty accuser. And he doesn't just bring charges, but he brings lies. And the the conscience, like a courtroom with with wrestling going on inside of it. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6.12, He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have this unseen level of the Holy Spirit, our perfect defender, representing us against Satan. Revelation 12 calls him our accuser. And here the Holy Spirit is kind enough to remind us of God's truths. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So there's the first level of deliberation, and now the second level you're probably all too familiar with. It's one of human experience, and it's often a hidden battle full of, of restlessness. Everyone gathered here today finds themselves in various states of wrestling through their guilt and their shame. 
Maybe you've laid awake at night and you've wondered how you might face the morning. There's a regrettable sin with so many consequences and it is looming in your mind. You don't want to talk about it with your spouse. You're not going to talk about it with your family. You're certainly not going to come into church and talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ about it. It becomes a screw that Satan loves to turn, painfully reminding you of your failure or even perhaps sin that's been committed against you that you somehow could have stopped. Maybe you're the type that, this is me, that you're constantly running running back through the things that you've said. You're wondering if what you said was sinful, or was it appropriate, or, or was it glorifying of God? Every word coming out of your mouth, you're thinking through these things. Maybe you like to unpack your day at the end, on your drive home from work, And all of a sudden, it all bubbles up. All of the things that you've said, all of the things that you've thought about the coworkers whom you love dearly but annoy you. (laughs) They annoy you. And so we move to try to block out this wrestling match that's going on inside. We don't want to look at the ugliness of guilt. We don't want to think about the weight of shame. And so some of us grab another beer. Some of us watch another episode. Some of us spend another hour scrolling on our phone. It's anything to distract our brain from looking at shame, looking at guilt. But wrestling with sin and the resultant guilt, that's a regular occurrence for Christians. We're going to talk about how we view that in just a minute, but I want to pause here and talk about two other important aspects that add greater dimensions to heart condemnation. While we've talked about those that do feel condemned by their heart, what about those that never feel condemned? Or those that do feel condemned, but the sin isn't theirs? If you don't struggle with feelings of condemnation on a regular basis, that's okay. It's right and good to not feel condemned all the time. As we progress in our righteous living, we're becoming more sanctified. We're becoming a little more like Jesus. And so maybe you're not thinking about your sin as often there's not as much. But our responses to sin in our lives are represented on a spectrum. Some of you are tender in conscience. You constantly battle guilt, regardless of whether you've committed a sin or not. I know you because you come up to me and you say, I'm so sorry, and I'm so sorry, and and you apologize profusely, and I don't even know what you're talking about because you never sinned against me in, in my mind. Maybe some of us have a more metered approach to dealing with sin. We, we come weekly to confess our sin before God. We're not as keenly aware of some of our sins, but thankfully we have our brothers and sisters, our spouses, they come alongside us and help us see our sin. That's a good thing. But if you're sitting here and you rarely feel condemned, you might ask, is that wrong? No, not necessarily. But on the other hand, it may point to a lack of, of self-awareness before God's holiness. I don't want you to hear that I'm saying we should be constantly condemned or we should feel like we're condemned because we're not and we should not feel that way. But the Bible warns us against being naive in dealing with sin and dealing with guilt. 1 John 1.8, just a couple of chapters before our passage today, says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So if you're effectively saying that you have no guilt, you don't really face any condemnation, you're saying that you have no sin. And the Bible says that you're a liar. 
But it's not all negative. It's positive too. There are benefits to acknowledging, to confessing, and to repenting of sin. Is our guilt met with condemnation? No. Our guilt is met with this glorious promise in 1 John, in the following verse from 1 John 1.8, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, forgive, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A greater knowledge of our sin and guilt leads to a greater understanding of the depths of God's grace toward us in Christ. Another aspect often leading to heart condemnation is this. Shame. Shame is a topic that is addressed in Scripture. Shame can be positive in its implications, but negative in its experience. Disciples, apostles, they were told that when they go out and they share the gospel, they're going to be put to shame. They're going to be ridiculed, maybe attacked or abused. And it was supposed to be a reason to boast. They're being made to to be ashamed, but they're supposed to be boasting in it. It might not feel like a good reason or a good time to boast when you're being ridiculed or made to feel small. And sometimes this happens to us. We're holding on to biblical truths with strong humility and our shame sensors are going off because somebody is coming at us. Shame is not always bad in purpose either. Paul uses it to urge the Corinthian church toward godly action. But more often or most often, We think about shame as sin that was committed against you directly or sin that was committed that sort of fell on you. You were a a bystander, we'll say. Shame is a really personal category to me and it's surely very personal to many of you. It's complex. It's often associated with trauma, with deep feelings of despair and worthlessness. Shame is like a, a bomb blast that goes off and Maybe it wasn't directly intended for you. Maybe it was. But we survive, and the shrapnel goes everywhere. It gets on us outside, it gets on us inside, and while the scars on the outside, they heal, the inside scars take a lot longer to heal, and no one can see them. It's scary. It's isolating. It can be all-consuming. It becomes a place of deep anguish and of avoidance. We start to live with these coping mechanisms trying to keep this beast of shame inside, not wanting to face the horrors that we've faced before. If shame is a present, a real category in your life, it's a battle that you're in right now, I don't want you to fight it alone. I want you to talk to someone you trust, someone that knows the gospel well. I would point to the elders and pastors here at Grace Bible Church. You want to lean in to starting to talk about it now so that the process of working through the the complex aspects of shame can even begin. It even makes God's truths hard to hear. It makes them sticky because we don't know if we can trust everything that Christ is saying to us. Even though the Gospel is our only hope of salvation, even though Jesus is our only hope of salvation, just telling ourselves the Gospel over and over doesn't just pluck shame out of our lives. We need to continue on in fellowship We need to continue hearing the word preached, but we do have to open our mouths and talk through these things. So we've talked about the indictment, about the heart and all of its complexities, about the charges, about the victims and the sentence for our sin. 
We've looked at these two big pieces of evidence of God being greater than our heart, God knowing everything, and we've talked about the seen and unseen levels of deliberation. As we move toward the verdict, we spot a problem with the prosecution's case. The heart has condemned us, and rightly so. In the face of all of the evidence, we know we've sinned, we know we're guilty, but here's the thing, the heart itself has not remained unscathed. The heart is not a neutral judge. The heart is not without bias. Sin has corrupted the heart as well. The the same heart that has given birth to the offenses is the same as the one who has judged us. And that heart is out of whack. Our heart is either taking bribes from an army of crooked internal cronies who want to self-justify, who want to minimize our sin, or redirect our attention away from sin so that we don't have to look at it, so that we can get off the hook. Or, as it says in verse 20, our heart has gotten up from the defendant's table, ran up, stormed the box, thrown the judge off, grabbed the gavel, and pronounced us guilty. We're pronounced guilty, and and yet we know we need to have hope. John hasn't said, oh, you don't have to worry about these objectives. I don't need you to think about being assured. I don't need you to think about being before God uh, with confidence. No, we know this deliberation is raging on and our guilt and our shame are weighing us down. The corrupt heart condemns us again and again and assurance begins to feel very far off. But according to the great working of the mercy of Christ, the seed of faith is never removed from us. Friends, the verdict is not far off, but it doesn't hold condemnation. It holds hope. So let's talk about the verdict. Point three. The problem John presented was a real one and is still. Our own heart condemnation, the realities of our sin, they're not actually in the hands of a jury. They're not deliberating whether to give us a lighter sentence. Sin before a holy God from Adam down to you and I, we've bought the grave and we get the wrath of God. Whether we've been convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit or accused of old sin by the accuser, that is Satan, the problem is magnified and distorted as our hearts take our accusations and they pronounce their own judgment on us. The continually condemning heart has imprisoned itself. The assumed role of judge must be vacated for the case to be tried appropriately. Before this verdict comes, we need a new judge. Listen to these words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Did you hear that? Did you catch what Paul said? Firstly, this is something I wish I could say, I don't care who judges me. But more than that, Paul doesn't even judge himself. He said, it is the Lord who judges me. Paul goes on in practical application, he says, Don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He's effectively saying, 
put down the gavel nice and easy so you won't hurt yourself anymore. It's not a denial of the right conviction that the Holy Spirit brings when we sin. Our consciences should sting with like real pain. We are aware that we've grieved the Holy Spirit, that we've sinned against God, that we've sinned against others. But it is not our position to take up the gavel. God has rendered judgment once for all, effectively taking our gavel away. Guilty or feeling guilty, both conditions and the myriad of emotions in between only have one solution, the cross of Christ. This is where we see our condemnation problem dealt with in its entirety. With the objective of being assured we can stand before God with confidence because we're no longer condemned. Paul goes on, Romans 8, 34 and 35, he says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And friends, brothers, and sisters, Jesus bore the wrath of God for us. If you've believed in Christ alone, then you are united to him in faith. God has laid the full judgment for our sin, for our condemnation on his own son. Our faith in him has placed us in him. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now we already looked at these public corporate aspects of God's knowledge of us and the intimate personal aspects. But God's knowing has gone further than we could ever imagine. The Spirit, our defense attorney, he's saying, look at the evidence again. How did Jesus know us fully? Well, he came to us as Christ. He came to the earth to know our human condition. He came to know our frailty. He looked at our sin and corruption And he didn't just walk away, but he dealt with it. Here is the high priest Jesus who sympathizes with us in our weakness, who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 As we walked back through the Luke passages, did not Christ in his earthly ministry continually probe the hearts of those he interacted with? He comes for the sick, not for the well. It's the same God, the same God who wrathfully opposes sin, whose presence won't even know sin. He brings His own Son to be with us, to sympathize with us, and to die for us. Christ didn't flinch at sin. He didn't think about His reputation. He didn't consider His rightful position as the greatest among the religious leaders, as the greatest rabbi. He came and He sat with sinners. He washed feet. He healed He restored. And then, as his ministry ended, he submitted to the Father's will totally at the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says it perfectly. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He took all of our shame. He took all of our guilt. He took our sins past, our sins present, our sins to come, and he despised them. Indeed, he became them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The shame and the wrath that we deserved were placed upon the sinless lamb. He was the only one who could plead innocent, and yet the judgment was poured out on him anyway. The cross was torturous. The cross was bloody. The cross had agony that we will never know. But it's the same place that Jesus triumphed over our condemnation. He becomes the the bloody sacrifice, atoning for all who believe in his righteousness rather than their own. The objectives that were held out in verse 19 have been reached. John is stating that God's greatness and full knowledge from verse 20, they've given us an unmovable foundation of faith, of being in the truth. He continues in verse 21 by saying, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. God gives us confidence by liberating our own hearts from their self-condemning ways. How? In Christ, the gavel is ripped from the hands of our heart and judgment is placed in God's hands. And what's the verdict? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Confidence in God continues to come by recognizing the hijacking of the gavel. We submit again to the finished work and declaration of our freedom because of Christ's resurrection. Before the indictment gets underway, before the deliberation, before the witnesses and evidence are before us, the case of our condemnation has been thrown out once for all because wrathful judgment was already pronounced on Jesus. And when we are oriented to him again and again by the Holy Spirit, we begin to lay claim more and more to the assurance that we do have. We begin to see the realities of verse 21, of freedom and of confidence. So as you encounter guilt and shame, often with sleepless nights or anxious thoughts, I want you to take the gavel out of your hands and submit it again to God the judge. The complex heart is not equipped to declare us innocent or guilty, but God is. He knows our sins, but graciously he looks upon the sinless one, on Christ in our place. And so we come to God pleading Christ, asking for forgiveness, and working through even the sins of others, knowing that God knows and will judge us rightly, truly, and without corruption, because he has found us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what mercy you give us because of Christ's work, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We thank you that you can remove, Father, even our shame, even our deepest guilt, because the blood that the sinless Lamb poured out on the cross covers it all. Father, help us again with eyes of faith to look at Christ who intercedes for us by the Spirit's power to lay claim to that confidence, and to that assurance that we can stand before God and know that we are of the truth, that we are in the faith. We ask for Christ's help in all of these things and pray this in his name. Amen.